Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I wrote the, uh, my autobiography after teaching a freshman class in which I couldn't get across to the students what it was like to grow up in Nazi Germany as a child and then also as a member of the Jungmädchen, the Beta M, and what the indoctrination was like, what it was like to be in a small town uh, and see that town turn Nazi, what it was like to see the Russians come, the disillusionment that I experienced after sort of just losing completely everything I believed in. Um, and because I really did believe in it, yeah, what I had been taught. And uh, then the, um, what it took to um, work that through, and of course also the drama of being expelled from our hometown as Silesia became Polish, yeah, and then restarting a new life in first West Germany. We were lucky that we were not... Um, expelled to East Germany, and um, then going back to school, or going first of all, first time to high school in the city of Bremen, which was in the American sector, and really experiencing um, being, let's say, re-educated. And I took that very seriously. What uh, our American instructors, was a young Harvard graduate who uh, just came to our, our school and did, a, did two, um, about two months with us of uh, just talking about different constitutions. I'll never forget that. And it was a very decisive influence on me. And I also spent most of my free time at the America House reading American literature so that when, um, after I studied at Tübingen, a, um, was it the Fulbright Commission, uh, what is it, asked me what I had read. I said, I, at first I couldn't, and my English was very bad. Uh, I couldn't even really talk. And then the question what I had read inspired me to just say, oh, Thomas Wolfe, yeah. And I suddenly was able to speak, and that won me a Fulbright Fellowship. And ever since then, uh, what is it? I've been very lucky. Okay, this is the overview. Uh, Now let me, um, yeah, off, off the book. The reception of a book like mine, Shame of Survival, intensely personal as it is, forces its author to meet her ghosts all over again, and not only her ghosts. One of the most surprising and one of the most rewarding aspects of this haunting response has been that readers, through the medium of my narrative, found their own family ghosts, their own unfinished, silenced narratives. The readers I'm speaking of are predominantly older people, in their 70s and 80s, and their children and grandchildren, whom they involved in their reading and to whom they broke their silence and now told their stories. This happened in my own family. My brother, who couldn't read the book because he doesn't know English well enough, got his son-in-law to translate it. This reading soon involved the entire family as they asked him about his story so different and yet similar to mine. 
He opened up and his children told me that they had never before heard him speak like that. Most of the readers who contact me by letter are Europeans from the territories Germans occupied during World War II. It's actually Germans, French, Belgians, uh, Poles. It's, it's really quite amazing. Greeks even. Yeah. Um, and of course Germans and German-speaking persons whose parents or grandparents lived through World War II. The following excerpt from readers' letters are self-explanatory. An 80-some-year-old psychoanalyst wrote, I wanted to tell you right away that for me it's the most important book I have read in a long time. It made me realize events and experiences in childhood, the importance of which I was well aware of, but which gained new weight on the foil of your book. A German immigrant married to the son of a Holocaust survivor says... Unfortunately, I was unable to attend your event at Brandeis, but I ordered your book, which just, I just completed reading, while visiting my parents in Hanover, Germany. I'd like to thank you, thank you for writing the book, which cannot have been an easy task. My mother's family is from Schlesia. My mother is the youngest of five, born in 1938, doesn't have many memories, but her older sisters do. Reading your book while visiting with them triggered a lot of conversation that I couldn't have had had I not read your book. I had many conversations with my family before reading you, but your book was so helpful in asking more and better questions as it provided such detailed information about the context and the lives of people at that time. The following are from a Canadian woman. My parents shared small shards of their story, what it was like after the war to be a survivor and refugee. But they did not speak of their participation in Nazi indoctrination that was their childhood. The trauma they experienced was never spoken of, but it was something I believe I experienced as a child through my nervous system. As a child, I was always on high alert as my parents' unspoken and largely unexamined experiences were acted out in our home. As immigrants, my parents removed themselves from any reconciliation that was occurring in Germany. I believe my father died holding, still holding some of the ideas of his Hitler youth experience. For me, you have helped me to make sense of the shame I always felt but couldn't name. I lived in a home with massive, unresolved grief. What I felt as a sensitive child but could not fathom profoundly affected me, and I've spent many years to make sense of my personal narrative. Recognizing my parents in your story was perhaps the most welcome gift I could ask for. There are not only other people's ghosts. I, too, had a visitation. A week after the book came out, I got a phone call. An educated, cultivated voice with a slight tremor said in German, You don't know me. I'm calling from New York. I'm Lotte Kohler. I read your book, and it brought it all back to me. I'm originally from Mecklenburg, but my husband was from Stoelen. That's my hometown. 
And my close friend, Eleanor, who unfortunately does not read English, knew Lotte Turnoff well. If you remember, Lotte Turnoff is the teacher in my book who was the Nazi teacher and who plays a large role because she was not only my teacher, but she was also our Hitler Youth leader. And after the war, she was my tutor and really enabled me to resume my education. She played a key role in my life. Okay. Lotte, Lotte T., my New York caller continued, was Eleanor's teacher in the late 1920s and the mid-30s, became her friend and corresponded with her at university after World War II until her death in the 1990s. In fact, during the later years, Eleanor's family adopted her as an aunt. They called her Talo. At a loss at what to say, I muttered something inane into the pause. <laughs> That's interesting. The voice began again. I heard about your book from Mrs. XY, and she brought it to me, and I've been reading ever since. It's the most meaningful book I've read in some years. Thank you, I answered, feeling that my response was inappropriate. My friend Eleanor, she said, continued, has kept the correspondence between her and Lotte Turnoff and some diary entries from the late 1930s till the mid-1990s. Do you want to see some of it? She now had my full attention. I remembered that I talked to Mrs. XY about my book at a recent conference when she mentioned a friend who might like to read it but I hadn't heard from Mrs. XY since. Yes, I'd like to see the correspondence I answered, and we ended the conversation soon after that. Being busy during the following weeks, I forgot about the call from New York. Two weeks later, a heavy brown envelope arrived containing a long handwritten letter from Mrs. Kohler, as well as a heap of Xerox sheets of handwritten letters and diary entries. Her friend Eleanor's promised correspondence and diary. Mrs. Kohler's letter tells the story of her own early life. Born in the 1920s, middle-class Protestant family living on a country estate, uh, much like my country, my country relatives, primary school in the village, high school in a, provin- in a, in a provincial town, Hitler Youth membership and enjoyable uh, camping trips with the Bundeutsche Mädchen household year service in the labor corps, then study in Breslau, Silesia, flight from Breslau on the last train out of the city to West Germany. Continuation of medical studies in Münster, Germany, training as a psychoanalyst and psychiatrist, emigration to the U.S. That's history. She counters my statement in my book that nobody living in Germany at the time can claim they heard nothing of Kristallnacht by saying, living way out in the country, I, during my household year at age 18, did not hear of it. I note the tone of reproof, and I'm skeptical in my turn. Her friend Eleanor's diary entries and letter begin in my hometown, Strelin, Silesia, in 1928. As a third grader's report 
about a new religion teacher who is, <clears throat> new, who is out of town, who speaks with a North German accent and for a lesion that sounds very funny, and promises to do a Christmas play with her charges. A later entry tells of the birthday present for the new teacher who is now <clears throat> the student's favorite. By 1932, the former religion teacher now teaches mathematics at the local lycée and responds to Eleanor, the 12-year-old's difficulty understanding the Pythagorean theorem with biting irony. Eleanor's response, T has become a real bitch. I don't like her at all, she writes. Yet, in the following years of the early 1930s, the teacher becomes Eleanor's friend, a do, since both student and teacher now have joined the Hitler Youth and share a common cause. As she writes, unsere Fahne flattert uns voran. Our flag leads us on. Um, Eleanor feels herself understood by this teacher, saying it's probably the special gift of a charismatic teacher that she can make each student feel personally addressed when the teacher actually addresses the group. What is striking to me to this point, Eleanor's letter and diary entries reflect my experience of Lotte, of a teacher who seduces you with promises and special understanding and then on occasion devastates you with irony, sarcasm, and harshness. Lotte's teaching of what was then called race psychology elicits this comment from Eleanor to Lotte after the Nazi years. Quote, you probably had no idea what inner conflicts and feelings of inferiority your teaching of race psychology caused for us. It was some consolation that you too were not blonde and Nordic looking. Okay. Here now is Lotte Chernoff in my account as she first appears. So I follow now and just construct a picture of Lotte as I give it in the book. A different story was told me by Lotte Turnoff, one of the young professionals at my grandmother's, uh, Mother Malendorf's dinner table, later my leader in Italy youth, and still later, in the first years after the war, my tutor in mathematics, English, and Latin. When I told her that as a child I had felt unaccepted by the family, she contradicted me. You were very much part of that family, she said. You and your brother always played with us in the dining room. Once when I said that I had no family, you, age three, eyes large with worry, broke into our conversation with no family, no grandma, no grandpa, no mama, no papa, no oma, no you, nobody at all, nobody at all. We all laughed and you were nobody at all from then on. Kein Nuscht und kein Garnuscht. The following shows her as I, I experienced her at age 10 as my Hitler Youth leader. So she was a me- practically a member of my family. Then when my family fell into poverty, she, what is it, we didn't hear of her. And with the Hitler Youth, this is the first time I encounter her. Um, Lotte T. entered after a while and went up to the teacher's platform. 
She looked down at us, her face stern. Welcome to the Hitler Youth Girl, she addressed us. You're beginning an important phase of your life today. From now on, you will serve your Führer and Vaterland through Jungmädel. For the next few months, you'll be on probation and learn the first steps in becoming the kind of Jungmädel the Führer wants you to be. Once you have been tested, you'll take your oath to the Führer after your return from summer break. Like all my Hitler Youth leaders, once they got started, she went on and on, and I stopped listening. The probation was a fiction. No one could or did fail because we were required to attend. In the next few entries, I'm 12 to 13 years of age, and Lotte appears as leader and teacher of the leadership group into which I was uh, drafted when I was 11 or 12. Lotte Turner walked slowly along our formation, and she did as she did so, I wondered, as I often did when I saw her, does she remember me? Does she remember that she was friends with my father and shared meals with my grandparents? Usually, she walked right past me, but this time she stopped and called my name, Osel Malendorf, to the front. I hated the diminutive Osel, preferring the family's Ulla by far. I stepped out of the formation even as she called other names. Finally, about six of us stood together. You'll be in leadership squad this year, Lotte told us. You've proved to us that you have leadership ability. Marlies is another leader, and I will train you this next year to be squad leaders. Another five few girls from around town will join you after the summer. We will ask more of you. You will have to attend... Hitler used twice a week now, Wednesday afternoons and Saturday afternoons. If you do well, some of you will be promoted and asked to lead your own squads. I envied the girls. Oh, yeah. Then Lotte called up another ten or so names. You'll be in the Spielgruppe, the entertainment squad. I envied the girls called up for the entertainment squad. They would have fun learn songs and dances, play charades, participate in choir, act and put on plays for our soldiers and for special occasions like the rallies or song competitions Marlies had taken us to a few weeks earlier. Heaven knows what we would learn. Lotte must have read my disappointment and turned to us. You are the future leadership of the Hitler Youth. You will guarantee the su- success of the Hitler Youth mission and to train the German youth for the, of the future to be strong in body and spirit. Many new tasks on behalf of our nation await you. I know you'll do your duty competently and enthusiastically. I was to hear speeches about being our, the future leadership over and over again from Lotte and from numerous Hitler Youth leaders at any and all occasions. They became theme song of my early teens. I never questioned them. They fired my enthusiasm, but the responsibility they demanded of me also weighed on me. At the moment, though, I felt proud to be chosen and eager to participate. Here, Lotte is in charge of our ideological instruction and did a lot of it. Lotte's favorite subject in her occasional lectures was national and racial hygiene. 
we learned that our nation, just as ourselves, had to keep itself physically and mentally healthy and our blood pure. Only a nation that allows the fittest to reproduce will have a glorious future, she sermonized. Mental as well as physical illness, alcoholism, vagrancy, and criminality are hereditary illnesses passed on to offspring by Mendelian law. We understood that to mean that she was talking about unquestionable scientific fact. If even one of your ancestors has been mentally ill, you may have inherited a gene for mental illness and might pass on the illness to one of your children, even though you yourself are healthy. That is what you should know your family's heredity and have your parents research your family's history, she added, personalizing her message. Most of you, no doubt, are of pure German blood, but you must be able to prove by a genealogy going back to the early 19th century that you're of sound Aryan stock. Then she returned to a generality. If mental illness or physical deformity is frequent in a family, people shouldn't have children and contaminate the Volksblut, the blood of the people. They should be sterilized or not married. Was suicide a mental illness, I worried? After all, father's sister Magdalene had killed herself. Did I have the gene? Could I go mad? Then I looked at Lotte speaking up front. Was she talking to me? She'd known my family when my aunt killed herself. For weeks after that lecture, I worried. I looked into the mirror obsessively as I tried to find out. Who am I? Am I mad? In my adolescent quest for identity, my eyes opened wide. I looked back at myself with desperate intensity. Was that insane? On another occasion, Lotte spoke of the cost of mental illness and physical deformity to the nation. People confined in mental institutions suffer, I understood her to say. They are burdened to themselves, to their families, and to the state. The money used to care for them could be better used to raise healthy children, children who would contribute to the welfare of the nation. She challenged us with, are the incurably ill, like schizophrenics or mongoloids, not better off, relieved of their suffering? That is what euthanasia, mercy killing, is about. I thought of the mongoloid daughter of my mother's uh, friend and knew that her death from pneumonia had been what it had been about. The sudden death of a healthy teen had been murder. This time, at age 12, I wasn't horrified and indignant as I had been at age eight. I no longer had empathy for her, but the disquieting question remained, did I have bad genes? And did Lotta know I did? In the following pages, paragraphs, Lotta speaks of racial types. That's the same thing that Eleanor had. what appears in Eleanor's letters as race psychology. Lotta's discussion of racial types gave me another reason to obsess. She described each type in terms of their mental, psychological, and physical characteristics. 
Germans derive their characteristics from a mixture of five distinct racial types, she told us. The Nordic type is the best. They are creative and spiritual. They are tall and slender, athletic and courageous. They are fair-skinned, red-haired or gold-blonde, blue-eyed, gray-eyed. The skull is elongated. She pointed to illustrations of the type on the walls of the classroom. Her pointer traced geographical regions in which the Nordic type constituted the majority on the maps of Europe. Nordics are contemporary descendants of the Germanic tribes about whom your history books tells us, she concluded. Her piercing eyes scrutinized our expectant faces, but then she turned to the next type when none of us seemed to measure up to the Nordic type. And then I go through the five types and conclude that the five times uh, types are, what is it, uh, Latin, Slavic, etc. Yeah. Um, I then go, <coughs> yeah, it still amazes me that a person like Lotte, who had some education in biology and the sciences, could have taken such nonsense for scientific fact. Of course, Nazi bio- biology textbooks promulgated this racial theory as legitimate science. When I got to know her better as my tutor after the war, I used to wonder, did she, with her jet black hair and sallow complexion, gray yellowish eyes, hawk nose, and scrawny body, fancy herself a dinarian like Hitler? As a 12 or 13-year-old, it wouldn't have occurred to me to wonder. I took in this unholy brew of racialized biology, geography, and Nazi mythologizing as the gospel truth. Like Eleanor, with her hurt feelings about Lotte's teaching of race psychology, I'm turning again to the correspondence, I conclude... It was a gospel truth that caused me some uneasiness at the time, and not only on account of my fears about a madness gene. Here, in the following, Lotte comments on the role of women in Nazi ideology. Of course, I learned from the Germanic sagas that women participated in heroism as mothers and wives. Unafraid, they stood right behind their men in battle and cheered them on to wake victory. But mothers who preferred their fathers, husbands, brothers, and sons dead rather than as cowardly seemed monstrous even to me. The female roles that Lotta advocated always bored me, and most of the time I thought that I would rather be a soldier and fight like a man. Lotte also provided us with sex education. Quote, When I no longer needed it two years later at age 14, I did receive a lecture about intercourse and impregnation, Nazi style. All 14-year-old Hitler Youth girls, about 40 of us, met with Lotte in the middle, middle school classroom. She had our immediate attention when she began with how difficult it was for mothers to talk to their daughters about sex. Most of us nodded our heads in assent. For that reason, she was going to talk to us about sex and our future function as wives of German men and as mothers of a new generation. 
Some of your families will doubtless not want me to talk about these matters, she said. We understood that to mean don't talk to them about these, what, they, what I'm going to tell you. But rather than hearing about sex and the gut talk of the street, as you no doubt will in future years, Lotte continued, I will provide you with factual information. I'm sure that by this time most of us had some information from our parents or contemporaries. We were, after all, 14 years of age. You will have enjoyed many children for the Führer, and that is why you must keep yourself pure. Of course, I knew what that meant. Don't talk and think about sex and keep clean. When your future husband makes you a mother, he will put his member into you like a sword thrusts itself into its sheath, and his seed will impregnate the ovum in your belly. Silence, and that was it. I've still difficulty understanding how a young teacher could be as alienated from her own body as to use such a violent, obscene metaphor. I still cannot believe that a sane adult could delude herself into thinking that she was doing us some good. Despite her prohibition, some of the girls did speak to their parents, but they had a better relationship to their mothers than I did. Several parents lodged complaints with the middle school principal about this strange attempt at sex education, and that ended any essay into the subject. I first, I lost touch with Lotte after I entered a teacher's seminar that's graduated from from grammar school and during the end of the war. I met her again on our return to Strelin during the Russian occupation when clearing rubble in the autumn of 1945. So that's on now after the war. I had decided that I would resume my education. I had asked Lotte if she would tutor me, but we had to be careful on how we went about doing so. You certainly couldn't talk about it. Quote, for fear she would give us away, I did not tell Erica, my friend, that I had talked to Lotte about giving me private lessons in mass, Latin, and English. Lotte had agreed, although I had nothing to pay her with. We started the lessons immediately, and since I had appropriated several math textbooks from the high school, Lotte could proceed to test me on what I knew and where to start. Our very first lesson told her that I needed to start from the beginning of the basic high school math book. After several lessons at her place, Lotte didn't think it was safe for her to see pupils there. She was afraid, no doubt, that somebody might report her to the Polish authorities. Having been a prominent Nazi in town, she didn't want to give anyone an opening for denunciation, particularly as the Polish authorities had begun to put those Nazis who had returned into prison. My mother readily agreed that it was safer to have the lessons in the bedroom we shared with our two aunts. Lotte's regular visits would be less noticeable as customers 
to the dressmaking business that my mother and aunt um, did from the living room. Mother also asked Lotte to teach Werner, my younger brother, whose schooling had stopped last December. At age 10, Werner was less than enthusiastic about lessons. But both my aunts heartily disapproved of our undertaking, constantly harping on our endangering everyone with the forbidden lessons. As I'm writing this, I'm wondering, was there any danger of our being reported? Suffice it to say that everyone thought so. We paid Lotte by including her in the oil and syrup production. Yeah, we had to provide all our own food, food, and so we went on the fields, harvested, harvested sugar beans and rasp, and then made wraps, and then made oil and sugar out of it. Yeah, so. And um, in this way, she became an almost regular member of the family. I felt ambivalent about her from the start. I was grateful to be taught, and I worked hard to learn what she offered. But I resented her comparing me to my, my work to that of other students she had taught. She called me undisciplined, a daydreamer, and that was true enough. I escaped her frequent reproofs through daydreaming. I felt I was never good enough. I could never relax and enjoy what I learned. She still supported Hitler's ideas avidly, and she denied that concentration camps had existed. And if they had, she asserted, Hitler had known nothing about them. I listened to her, and I wished she'd talk about something else. I was embarrassed and I worried that other adults might think her crazy. But I felt too dependent on her as a teacher to contradict her with what I knew, that I had seen released concentration camp inmates, and that their very looks confirmed the horrifying stories most other adults in my work crews and in our house occasionally told with averted eyes. Stories of mass shootings, of deliberate starvation, of beatings of inmates. Lotte assumed that I thought as she did and invited me when she did memorial services for Hitler or celebrated former Nazi holidays like November 9th. She usually conducted these when the two of us went scrounging for food supplies, like for mushrooms in the town woods or sugar beet greens that mother made into a spinach-like vegetable. Next to her at the edge of a ditch by a deserted roadside, I sat silently and morosely as she sermonized and swore undying loyalty to Hitler. I felt mortified about my hypocrisy. Once we came to the West from Silesia, she helped me gain admittance to high school. This is just a brief interlude here. I'll fill you in on facts. During this period, she increasingly became my friend who supported me against my mother who thought that my plans for an education were a dangerous fantasy. I mean, we were refugees in a refugee camp. We had no money, we had no clothes, nothing. And I was dreaming about going to high school with no money to pay anything with. Yeah. So from the adult's point of view, it did look like a fantasy. Lotte listened to my angry railings against the high schools that wouldn't admit me, against the adults who stood in my way. 
It was she who encouraged me to take an adult education class, an art class with her, and who accompanied me on excursions to local art communities. Quote, Lotta and I had taken an adult education class on expressionist painting. The first few weeks we were in Adelheide, the refugee camp we first lived in in West Germany. I'd seen copies of Dürer's etchings and never any art than Nazis den- uh, denigrated as degenerate like the expressionists. I'm sure Lotte took the class because she was curious what the teacher would do with the subject of degenerate art. Of the first lecture, I only remember the illustrations of Franz Marx and Karl Schmidt-Rotloff's paintings of the Blue Rider and Brücke Groups' painting. They were glorious, blue horses, swirls of red-blue, and yellow cows dancing, a crouching tiger made of yellow triangles, blotches of red, green, blue, a dike break. The remarks of the other students about unnatural colors and Lotte's derogatory comments about primitivism could not have struck me as more ridiculous and inappropriate. As my high school began more comf- to feel more comfortable to me, and I'd finally gotten into one, Lotte's influence waned, and my personal friendship with her ended after the following incident. That November in 1947, as she had at all former Nazi festive occasions, Lotte asked me to commemorate the 9th of November with her, the commemoration of Hitler's failed coup in, 19, uh, in Munich in 1923, when a number of Hitler's faithful had died. She told me that she wanted to affirm our loyalty to Hitler and his party. No, you still don't understand, do you? Loyalty to them? These were criminals, all of them. Everything they ever taught us was dead wrong, was all I could say. If she refused to teach me after my refusal, I'd just have to manage on my own. She felt offended by my rejection, but continued our lessons, and I appreciated that he kept strictly to mathematics, English, and Latin from then on. I paid her with the money I began to make from tutoring. With this entry, she disappears from my book, although not completely from my life. Once I'd caught up in the subject she could help me with, I stopped seeing her. Occasionally, after I went off to the university and then to the United States, I heard from my family that after denazification proceedings, Lotte was not allowed to teach for six years, and later, in 1952, that she was teaching again, that she had become part of another family, that of the northern German students she had tutored during her enforced sabbatical. It was only after I began writing on the shame of survival that the anger and ambivalence I had as a teen became clear to me, mixed in with an almost physical revulsion at anything that reminded me of her and my former relationship to her. As I was writing, she became for me the arch-Nazi to whom I attributed everything I had learned of Nazi ideology. She became the symbolic Nazi within me. Yes, it was she who was the leader who spoke about mental illness to us. Yes, 
She taught us race psychology. Yes, she gave us the sex education class. These memories are crystal clear down to the very last word. But as far as other points of ideology are concerned, she may well have presented them, but other, less personally important Hitler Youth leader may also have taught them to me. Yet I attributed all of it to her. To be sure, I was fully aware that for narrative reasons, one dominant Nazi figure was more effective than several less fully developed figures. But it was also clear to me now that the main reason for this former choice was psychological. My anger, no fury at her for abusing my adolescent trust in her authority. My rejection of her seductive teasing and manipulativeness. At the conclusion of writing, I thought I was done with her. And now, with Mrs. Kohler's call and then Eleanor's correspondence, she was back with a vengeance. What struck me immediately was the difference between young Eleanor's gentler image and my strident one of the Nazi teacher, despite underlying similarities. Is it only the difference between a youthful impression of a charismatic teacher like Eleanor's or an old woman's unforgiving recollections of the teacher who had misled her and helped her? Let's turn now to the adult Eleanor and Lotte and to the post-war correspondence between them. Eleanor's letters from the university speak about her studies and her goal to become a psychiatrist. She writes about what the psychology of Jung comes to mean to her. In later exchanges of the 1980s, Eleanor writes about her religious beliefs. Hers is the position of the liberal Christian. Lotter responds as an agnostic. Quote, I'm not a Christian. For me, that is a person who believes that he is redeemed through Christ. I don't believe in that. But I do believe in original sin. That is to say that no human can live without becoming guilty. Guilt seems to have figured large in the years before her death, as Eleanor's diary reports, that Lotte cannot pardon herself that she was a Nazi. The correspondence concludes with a draft of a confession of faith of 1988, which Lotte asked Eleanor to comment on. Eleanor's reply is missing. At this point, I know what is coming. My brother Werner, who had been also, also been Lotte's student and had gone to her, lived in the same town and gone to the funeral wrote me about this funeral in 1996 and spoke of a shocking confessional letter that Lotte had one of her former students read to the assembled mourners, most of whom had been her students, namely, and he wrote that almost as an aside, that she had been guilty of someone's death by gassing. Struck by the shock of such a confession and the theatricality of such a last letter, I immediately asked my brother for details. 
He wrote back after some time, and he said he didn't remember having written anything like that. Frustrated, I put the matter aside, but after finishing Shame of Survival, I thought I might use my surmises about such a confession in a short story about Lotte. It was Eleanor's correspondence that I now found a draft of the confession. After a rhetorical question of what in the Christian confession of faith she believes in, namely God the Father, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, Lotte justifies her disbelief with words from Goethe's Faust, who may name him, who affirm, I believe in him. Lotte professes a belief in some kind of transcendence that humans cannot comprehend as the universe cannot have arisen from nothingness. I'm struck by the defensive and flat generality of these thoughts, fragments. Similarly, in the next session, section of the confession, I believe in eternal life, etc. Finally, Lotte comes to the theme of guilt. And here the words, do not seek refuge in religious and literary rhetoric, and therefore they carry a bit more authenticity. I'm sure that those were the sentences my brother heard at the funeral and refused to remember. Schuld. Becoming guilty is part of being human. Our generation has put upon itself something almost incomprehensible with the Holocaust. It took me a long time after 1945 until I understood that I also was guilty, even though I really didn't know about the annihilation of Jewry, the Judenvernichtung, for those of you who know German. When I heard about it on Polish radio and in English and French newscasts, I discounted it as enemy propaganda. My comment to that You still discounted in 1947. My adolescent self contradicts her. It was and still is a horrifying thought that I perhaps contributed to the death by gassing of the person once dearest to me. It was good for me that I was removed from teaching for six years after 1946. I was a different person when I stepped in front of my students again. Had I been redeemed, I don't believe in redemption by Christ. That is why I cannot call myself a Christian. I must bear my guilt. This is where the confession ends. Ever since reading Schnitzler's short story, The Last Letter of a Literateur, I've been distrustful of such letters from the grave. They promise the audience an ultimate, honest explanation of puzzles the writer feels she or he has left behind her, a confession of the truth and nothing but the truth before the throne of eternity, a final easing of the guilty conscience. I don't know if Lotta wrote more in the letter that was actually read at her funeral. Eleanor's diary does not say, and she doesn't seem to have been present at the funeral. Judging by my brother's shocked, embarrassed response 
and the almost immediate forgetting? I don't think so. What is it then that disturbs me about this confession? She promises a revelation about herself, that I perhaps contributed to the death by gassing of the person once dearest to me, and then leaves her audience hanging. Who? What? She do something? Report the person? Desert him of her? Is her as a gen- generic assuming of responsibility? If so, did she attempt to find out what happened to the person after the Nazi period? Attempt to acknowledge her remorse? She doesn't say. Just as the introductory generalized statement, becoming guilty is part of being human, shields her from the full impact of facing her individual responsibility. She evades speaking about the specifics. Who was it who was dearest? And why can she not or isn't willing to say it? Think of the theatricality of the setting. A last letter from a dead teacher to her students. Manipulating them from the grave? Pathetic now. But typical of how I experienced her, she draws you in with horrifying thought over compliments, and then leaves you hanging with unanswerable questions in a sadomasochistic bind. Eleanor, to be sure, acknowledges the shock the letter produced in her her diary, as she calls it an extraordinary confession. She realizes that the gap in information might cause later readers of the confession to stumble over the sentence It is a horrifying thought to me that perhaps I contributed to the death by gassing of the person once dearest to me. Therefore, she provides an explanation who who is meant by dearest, namely that Lotte in the 1970s told her of an engagement to a young Jewish dentist, an engagement that founded because his Orthodox family opposed their marriage. It's a really Hollywood sort of explanation. This was a great disappointment to Lotte, and Eleanor surmises that this rejection might have been the reason why she became vulnerable to Nazi racial thinking, which another friend of hers, a rabid Nazi, exposed her to. Eleanor's desire to find excuses for Lotus having been a Nazi is, of course, most obvious here. But let's turn to Lotte Turnoff, because she doesn't let me go. Her confession haunts me, inspires feelings of pity and anger. Why did she write the confession? And why did she have it read publicly after her death? I can believe that she was sorry that she had been a Nazi and that she was horrified that someone she had loved might have been gassed. But why can she not tell the whole story? Was it so shameful to her that she had been engaged to a Jew or that she was rejected? If either is so shameful to her at the time she composed her confession in the 1980s, then she is still an anti-Semite. 
Or is she caught as so many educated Germans were in mouthing philosophical religious generalities that shielded them from facing uncomfortable and deeply troubling insights into the particulars of their personal responsibility. The whole last confession strikes me as as a theatrical performance for the former students who came to the funeral. Is she the manipulative tease who still cannot be straight with herself as well as with everyone else? Is all of it a theoretical gesture? And what else was the Weltuntergang, the apocalypse Hitler and his gang played for us, the German population, in 1945 other than a theatrical gesture of Wagnerian dimensions? For myself as an adolescent, I remember the intensity of that experience. A personal exaltation I felt then as part of the grandiose spectacle of the Weltuntergang of 1945, the apocalypse and the end of World War II for Germans. A spectacle that I came to know for what it was, theatrical, hysterical, and deadly, and that I rejected at the moment I escaped from the suicide group I described at the end of my ninth chapter and came to understand only when I confronted that what the part I might have played in the Holocaust. What does her theatrical gesture confront me with? My conflicted feelings about her Gratitude for helping me get access to my education. Pity for her. The guilt can't have been easy. And anger at her for seducing me to engage with her once again. For teasing me with promises of providing something, the truth here. And anger at myself for allowing myself once again to be deceived. Thank you. I was just wondering if uh, membership uh, in the Hitler Youth was mandatory for all German children, and I was curious about some of the responsibilities um, of a leadership position within the Hitler Youth. Mm Uh, It was mandatory after 1939 for all 10-year-olds and for all children. Uh, That did not necessarily mean um, that uh, all children went. If you were in a village that didn't have any leaders and the school teacher wasn't willing to do it, then you could, you, you know, you you could really get away with not going. If you had Catholics, parents, or parents who were convinced that this was really bad, they could write you excuses. But it was difficult to get out of it, yeah. My brother, for instance, didn't want to go uh, because uh, at the first meeting he had gotten beaten up, and so he had no desire to return. And uh, so uh, he... um, after he hadn't gone for about oh, 10 meetings or so forth, 
the police came and got him, yeah, and put, and he was for a while in what was called the Pflichtheiot, where he had to go, and where they did, uh, you know, uh, what is it, basic training with them. And after that, he went as little as he could get away with, that is, every third or fourth time, yeah. Uh, so th th it depended, but it was definitely, it was actually legally uh, uh, necessary. Now, for myself as a squad leader, yeah, I, I, I never made it, and it, I had more than enough after two years of being a squad leader uh, and never wanted to have any, anything to do with it again because what it meant is I had to be responsible for the attendance of the girls, and the squad I had were mostly children from a working-class district. And I could never, you know, get them, get more than half my squad uh, to come. And so I had to go and visit the mothers. And I didn't want to report them, yeah. Uh, and so I, I visited the mothers. And I spent most of my time, almost every afternoon, visiting somebody or other to try to get the mothers to come. So I learned a lot about the mothers. And I came, actually came to like them, yeah. And I could understand why the children couldn't come because... Uh, there were siblings they had to take care of and all that. I must have reported some of that them because we had to report them, yeah. But it was so deadening, so boring. And also leading a squad didn't allow you to participate in the participate in the sports and so forth. You were always busy supervising somebody. I was good and tired of it. So when uh, what is it when uh, I graduated. I didn't want anything to do with it. But then in the teacher's uh, seminary, I was again drafted to, to do a leadership thing. And there it was just to uh, sort of like to be the class leader, which meant to carry the, the, what is it, the class book to give to the teacher when they entered grades or something like that. Yeah, it didn't involve, fortunately, too many duties. Now, uh, that's my specific case, yeah. I do give quite a number in the book itself of description what the leadership training was like for people who wanted to go or were higher up, and that was quite structured, yeah, what the leadership training was. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.